Welcome to the fourth episode of the Food Can Fix It podcast. I'm your host, Marianne Stixit. Today's guest is Lena Gordon, the newly appointed director of the Stockholm Resilience Centre, EAT's scientific partner. We talked to Lena about why water is the bloodstream of the biosphere, the power of consumers, and how we need to adjust our eating habits to make them both healthier and sustainable. However, Lena is not a believer in cutting meat and dairy out altogether. Livestock has an important role to play in our food system, she says, both from a livelihood and a biodiversity perspective. Instead, she prefers what she calls the good shift, keywords for which are quality, culture, and culinary innovators. Dear Lena, welcome to the Eat podcast. Thanks a lot. We're absolutely delighted to have you, not only because you're a long-standing friend of Eat, but also because you've just been appointed new director of the Stockholm Resilience Center. Now, for our, li- our listeners who are not who are not entirely familiar with the Stockholm Resilience Center, can you tell us a little bit about what the uh, what the center does? Mm. The center is really an interdisciplinary science-based organizations. We're part of the Stockholm University. So we bring together people from different disciplines or scientists from different disciplines to understand um, the the world that that we live in right now. I mean, we as people are changing the biosphere, the planet that we live on so fundamentally. We're really trying to understand what does this Uh, change mean for human society and how can we become better stewards of the planet that we live on so we really need to take that interdisciplinary approach uh, and really understand the connections between nature and people Um, so we both do research on that basically basic science but very interdisciplinary basic science but then we also want to make sure that it doesn't stay in science but that we can actually create change also or inspire change because the as you all know right now we live in a time where it's not a sustainable development uh, trajectory and we have big changes that we need to um, have happened. All the curves are still going in the wrong direction, aren't they? For exactly. I mean, we see lots of things happening in a positive direction now, but we really need to mobilize all the good forces to make sure that we are moving ahead to achieve the sustainable sustainable development goals, for example. And that's a challenge that a lot of scientists are, are, are faced with. Is, is precisely one thing is actually getting the research and, and covering the, mm-hmm. the knowledge gap, but then it's also getting that science translated into action and having people actually use that knowledge and that mm. science. Mm. How does one go about doing that? Mm. I, I think there's so many different answers to that question, but I think part of it having has to do with... Uh, making sure that the science that you're doing is relevant for society and asking the right type of questions that we really need to address um, and then engage with change makers. There's so many people that really are moving in the right direction. So what can we learn from what's already going on and how can we mobilize further to sort of help that development? Mm. Um, But I think also we need to get Uh, more of a sort of synthesis across different science that's already occurring. Um, We need to understand 
what the science mean for society. So it's a big job also to mobilize and connect the science that already goes on. I think food is a good uh, area to give examples from because they're often perceived um, between organic or conventional agriculture, for example. Uh, we really need to bring together the people that understand that challenge and can help us overcome these uh, debates and see what is the evidence on the table. Mm. What is healthy f- food, actually? We mm. need to bring together the evidence. So in climate science, this has been done for a long time with the IPCC, for example, um, so that you really mobilize the whole community to say what do we have evidence for, what don't we have evidence for and where is there sort of conflicting goals and I think we need to dis- do similar things for the food system mm. Now part of the food system, an important part of the food system mm. is, um, is, uh, is water and you're actually an internationally recognized scientist uh, on sustainability of, of water and, and food as you just mentioned and the biosphere mm. Now, water has been called the bloodstream of the biosphere. Why is that? What does that mean? I, I love that term. It actually comes from Professor Malin Falkenmark, who has been also a long-term friend of the Stockholm Resilience Center and working for SRC over the past years. Um, basically, often when we think about water, we think about the water that we drink or that we see in the rivers and aquifers. Um, but that's only... St- a very small part of the whole hydrological cycle. So water really cycles between the atmosphere, rainfall, falls on the ground, infiltrates into the ground, and then it uh, runs off and becomes the river water that we see. Um, So the bloodstream of the biosphere is that whole hydrological cycle that maintains the ecosystems uh, of the biosphere. And water has that fundamental role of giving life to these ecosystems. But I think it also illustrates that the ecosystems are also part of modifying the water flow. So if you have a forest, for example, and then you cut the forest, it's actually going to be less water transported back to the atmosphere. Uh, So the forests have a key role of pumping up water to the atmosphere that then can fall as rainfall somewhere else. So the interplay of ecosystems and the hydrological cycle, I think, is captured in that bloodstream of the biosphere. Now, that's really interesting. And obviously, uh, the way we produce food is, is a major contributor to impacting mm-hmm. how, that system, how that system functions. And uh, how do you think that, um, how is, is, is the way we produce food affecting the water resources and, and, and contributing to some of the challenges that mm-hmm. we're facing with the water resources today? It's uh, probably the main way that we are affecting water resources. So both because we withdraw so much water for irrigation. So 70% of all human water withdrawals are for irrigation. So irrigation is a main driver for water scarcity in many areas. Um, But it's also uh, pollution affecting waterways. So nitrogen and phosphorus leaking out from agricultural fields, for example, that is causing eutrophication downstream. But then we're also altering the capacity of land to infiltrate water when it rains. So if we don't take care of our soils, we get more, we get less water into the soils that can help plants grow also in rain-fed agriculture. So therefore, agricultural management of land and soil is extremely important. And 
most of the lands today are not irrigated but are rain-fed. So we need to manage that rain-fed agriculture much better to actually sort of use the rainfall in a good way, in a productive way. Now, are, that, are we facing the same challenges in, in, in the global south as the global north, or are there any differences in terms of, in terms of that yeah. geogra- in geographic uh, expansion? Yeah, I would say that there are some major differences, that in the global south, less is irrigated land, for example. But then it's really also about temperate versus tropical and between dry and wet regions around the world. And if you look at where are the world's world's dry lands, you can also see there is a very close relation between dry land areas and poverty, for example. So a lot of the poverty, the world's most poor regions uh, also have uh, dry yeah, problems with too dry climates. Mm. So in that sense, uh, we need to understand much better how we can sort of increase agricultural production in dryland areas, uh, often in rain-fed agricultural systems and with technologies that are possible for smallholder farmers to take up. So that's kind of different from what we're facing in Sweden, for example, where we have much more water available and better technology and better um, sort of climate in some ways. Mm. So we need to start thinking a little bit differently about how we produce our, our food in, in, or yeah, how we produce our food in general and how we perhaps start being a little bit smarter about how we, how we use our water resources. Yeah. Are you seeing any, any promising innovations on that front that, you, uh, that, that, that make you optimistic that we're going to be able to crack that? Not. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there is so much happening all around the world. It's everything from uh, more uh, efficient uh, irrigation systems, uh, but also in terms of rain-fed agriculture, there are lots of small-scale uh, innovations that are actually happening on the farmer's field and that uh, make sure that we can sort of close the yield gap, this gap between what is possible to produce and what's actually produced. And a lot of it has to do with this infiltration of rainfall in the ground, but also that there is enough nutrients available so that plants can use the water that infiltrate. And there's, yeah, there's uh, lots of things happening around that area, but it also needs to be more investment in that uh, type of systems because... The more larger scale irrigation system we've been investing in for a long time and you can see the benefits more clearly. Sometimes the small scale innovations that are happening on these rain-fed agricultural systems, uh, they haven't uh, um, attracted as much um, funding and, uh, and so on. So I think we need much more investments in the smallholder system also. And is this where it's important to, to strengthen public and private sector partnership to get the private sector involved absolutely. both on the innovation side and is also in the investment side? And yeah. to yes, absolutely. No, it's a very important area. Mm. Mm. Now, there was a much cited report in the journal Science uh, mm. recently um, that says that, that avoiding meat and dairy products mm. is the single biggest way to reduce the, uh, your environmental impact on the planet mm. and livestock is notably a major contributor to water pollution and uh, and uh, freshwater withdrawals now is waving farewell to our burgers and our breed the mm. most important contribution we as consumers can do to a more sustainable use of our water resources mm. yeah both water resources and other resources but i I think I, I'm one of the people who... I don't want to go as far as saying waving for, uh, farewell or 
totally cutting meat and dairy. We need to reduce the consumption we have today and the production we have today uh, globally. But livestock definitely have a place in our food system and they are an important part of a more circular agricultural economy. Um, And they can also contribute a lot both to livelihoods, but in Sweden, for example, they're important for biodiversity efforts um, and land use where we actually have land abandonment and growing forest as sort of one of our problems. So I think we need a drastic reduction of uh, meat and dairy, but but we can't uh, live without them either. We need also to bring in the animal health aspects. So if we can find a way to have livestock in our system on a smaller um, size than today, but in where we're producing better meat and more integrated systems. I think that's a very important part of the so future it's important solutions. to see the nuance in it that it's not entirely black and white. And that's interesting because mm. it, it, the, the, the the debate often does turn into black and white and saying that the future mm. red meat cannot exist in our future if we want to get greenhouse gas emissions down. Um, but it's also important, like you mentioned, to, to, mm. to take into consideration both the biodiversity aspect and also the importance of livelihoods for smallholder farmers, which is often mm. ignored when the debate takes place, especially in in in, in um, uh, in uh, Western platforms. Mm, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I know also that gastronomy is also a big interest of yours and that mm. you attach a lot of importance to the role of, of chefs in bringing about mm. what you call the good shift. So I'm both going to ask you, what, 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 what do you mean by the good shift and, and what role can chefs play in this? Yeah. Well, the good shift, it, it actually comes also from Swedish where, where we call it the goda skiftet. So goda is both sort of tasty and good. Um, so, um, uh, and there, I see there are at least four different shifts that need to happen. One is a protein shift where we need to shift away from <clears throat> a lot of the current meat to more plant-based uh, proteins. Another is uh, shifts around the quality that we've had a very volume focused food system we need to focus more on the quality of the food that we produce i think we need to focus more on the culture around food um so sort of a cultural shift to really value food as part of our lives so can not just for nutrition but really as part of our culture so i think that's also and the 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 way that food can be used for a sustainable uh, planet and healthy lifestyles beyond the nutrition it gives. And the fourth shift has to do with um, the role of uh, rural and urban areas, where rural areas are becoming really important drivers for change, and we need better sort of partnerships between rural and um, uh, urban areas. And in all of these shifts, uh, culinary innovators are very important, because there's no way that we can have a healthy and sustainable uh, diet without it also being attractive and taste well. Um, And we see around the world now chefs that are really experimenting and innovating with what is on the plate and how can we use the diversity of crops that we are growing but also all its parts. So how can you use a sort of nose-to-tail thinking uh, in everything that we eat, that we really use our resources uh, well. 
they're also innovating around how to reduce food waste and um, uh, and how to build better partnerships with farmers and so on. So I see them really taking a leading role in creating a good shift across all these domains and also educating educating uh, the public perhaps as well given given sort of the celebrity status that a lot of co- a lot of chefs have absolutely have, have today yeah and they can show it's possible and that it can be tasty and it can be convenient as well and i think it's important to recognize also that we need to engage all the chefs it's both sort of the fine dining chefs who can maybe tell the story and create a bit of that attraction but it's also the chefs in our public uh, kitchens in schools and elderly care etc so we really need uh, changes across that whole um, yeah segment so uh, and they're important in all those dimensions and do you think they can also inc- contribute to inspiring consumers to, to start cooking at home more and to having meals together because that's also an important component both from the social aspect of, of, of family cohesion mm. but also doing cooking home cook meals and knowing exactly what kind of ingredients you put in there and, and educating people about whether where the actual ingredients come from. Yeah, no, I think that's also a very important part of it, that if we can have sort of learn, I think we need to be re-educated in some ways of how to have mm-hmm. to cook and the ingredients about it. But I think there's another flip side to that story, that we also, in the type of lives we live today, we also need convenient food, and that uh, the solution is not that everyone is going to cook all their food in, in their own house, But I also like to think that there is a spectra. If you have a week, for example, maybe you can think of your Sunday meal with the family and that's where you put in some more effort and you have that community feeling in the kitchen and you learn and you get reconnected to sort of cooking. And the rest of the week, maybe you have more food outside of your house or you... Uh, eat more convenient <laughs> food. So I think we need to be realistic also what's uh, possible. But both of the convenience and the, I, I call it kind of reconnection to the food uh, yeah. uh, cooking, uh, we need both of those sides. And it's also a way of empowering consumers as well. Like for, mm. at, at Eat, a lot of the questions that we get when we talk to people is mm. people listen and say, fine, but but what, what do I as a consumer, how can I contribute to the achievement of this, the SDGs or the mm. Paris Agreement, it seems like something that is that is that is um, so far out there and such, and that requires um, essentially tools taken at a high high level political stage, mm. rather than something that people can do in their day to day lives. But but there are things, and one of the things is is, is cooking. But there's, there's there's a number of things, tools that we can that we can that we can give consumers that also mm. have a, a, a significant impact mm. on Absolutely. sustainability. Yeah, and consumers can also demand different solutions and demand different types of food. So consumers have a big role in this, even though we can't leave the responsibility only with the consumers. It's really about the, getting the right people and the big actors around the table to sh- make larger shifts in the food systems. But they're not going to do it unless they have the consumers with them. So you need sort of both of those uh, sides of the story. And that's the thing. It's, it's, it's mm. Politicians need to know that they're going to get re-elected once they've done the right thing. Mm. And, and companies need to know that, uh, um, that there's going to be a demand for their product if they actually make the effort of investing in, in, in products that are, that are more sustainable and, and healthier and tastier because it does require certain, certain investments. So mm. it's, it's both... 
using that leverage of the consumers, both on the policies level and and the, mm. and the business level, that I think is is easy to forget at times. Mm. And I think I guess that's also why I love what it is doing because it it is really bringing all of these actors to the same table and it's drawing on the science and what the science says is necessary in terms of a large shift in the food system and then bringing those actors from the consumer to the industry to the politicians that can make change happen so uh, yeah that's uh, very exciting to see and to see it here that it's actually happening now. Mm. Now to, to to leave our listeners with a little bit of inspiration, given that you uh, that uh, that you are a fan of gastronomy, what 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 mouth watering dish do you serve to your friends and family? Lena's rolling her eyes now, <laughs> but what mouth watering dish would you serve your friends and family if you want to treat them to a a healthy, tasty, and sustainable meal? What would you what would you think of cooking? Mm. Well, I have kids at home also who are. Uh, seven and nine and uh, then uh, my partner is Canadian I'm Swedish we often have quite international guests so it's I often cook some type of a smorgasbord or mixed type of table I love sort of tacos or Mexican food but to do them a bit with the inspiration also of what we can find in Sweden but what I like about it is that you can You can have so many different components and everyone can build their own plate from what's on the table. So you take a piece of uh, tortilla bread and then you fill it with your beans and chili stew and you add some guacamole or, or something. And then the children maybe build up their taco differently. But if you can have that mix, you can still eat together and you have a joint table together and then people can uh, sort of build their own uh, base mm. and I, I like that type of eating and then primarily plant-based but um, <laughs> but maybe with some a little bit of flavor also from yeah. the livestock systems that we system. also need to keep that sounded absolutely delicious and on that tasty note I will say thank you very much Lena for taking the time to talk That's it from us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. We're back next week with our guest Ali Said Mandri, also known as Chef Ali Latiste, a celebrity chef, TV radio personality, culinary instructor and food stylist. Ali works tirelessly to champion Kenyan cuisine both nationally and internationally and is part of IFAD's Recipes for Change campaign to raise awareness about the impacts of climate change on food crops and traditional recipes. In the studio with me today was producer Gustav Glomset. I'm Marianne Stixet, and you've been listening to the Food Can Fix It podcast, produced by EAT.